11, verses 1 through 4. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is an unmitigated joy to be back with you, hey, Bridgetown. Uh, so nice to be here. Hello, all you people watching online in your pajamas. Um, and it is just thrilling, actually, to come in and see what God is doing in this community, in this city. Um, I don't know, I suppose when you go around your daily life, you don't get out of bed in the morning and go, wow, another day of miracles. But I get to, you know, come in from time to time. I was with you last at the end of February. And I can see what God has done in your midst. There's an increase of joy. There's a freedom. There's a moving of the Spirit that I see building in your midst. God's bringing ministries in raising up ministries. We just had the 24-7 USA National Conference here and you guys did the most brilliant job hosting it and serving the church in the nation. Tim Mackey did an off-the-charts talk. It was anointed, one of the most anointed talks I have ever heard. Just after speaking here last time, uh, I was in Oklahoma City and I arranged to have uh, a meal with my uh, a friend, Brian Russell, because he was in Oklahoma City. And in a very conspiratorial way over dinner, he said, I'm leaving you version. You know, I'm like, no, this is like the Pope leaving the Catholic Church, you know. <laughs> Why? He said, I don't know. We just feel the Holy Spirit's told us to move to Portland, Oregon. We've been stalking this church there called Bridgetown during COVID. I'm like, that's amazing. And I, I phoned Ty and said, do, do you know that Brian Russell is moving to your church? He's like, no. And so, and, and so there's a sense God's gathering people in this place at this time. He's raising people up. You are uh, uh, ministering and, and, and blessing, you know, practicing the way, uh, the way that is spread. I mean, it's just amazing what God is doing in your midst. And I just want to come in from outside and say hallelujah and good job. And I know it's not always easy, but God is with you. And if you're new here, this is a good place to be, okay? They're not perfect, uh, which means you'll fit right in. So, and um, so this uh, message today is, uh, I think, the fifth in your Vision 2022 series, exploring the house of prayer motif, which is one of the most, it's not just a bit of the Bible, it's one of the most important, it's in all four Gospels. The moment something's in all four Gospels, you have to take it particularly seriously. And, and Jesus takes the house of prayer motif from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, and it is the thing he is so passionate about that he cleanses the temple. 
This is the scripture that explains that moment uh, of his life. And and, and the synoptic gospels say that the the house of prayer, uh, the cleansing of the temple was one of the last things Jesus did before he got crucified. You could almost say it was the event, the tipping point that got him crucified. The apostle John, uh, uh, John in his gospel, takes the story and puts it at the start as one of the first things that Jesus did because when you, John was basically like making movies. They just didn't have movies yet. He's very, very visual. I mean, conservative evangelicals will say it happened twice. Jesus cleansed the temple at the start and the end of his ministry. That makes this an incredibly important moment. But equally, if John was taking it and saying, what's the story that will explain everything else about Jesus and his ministry? It's this moment, the cleansing of the temple. And when Jesus explains it, he says, my father's house shall be a house of prayer. Uh, but you've made it a den of robbers. And so um, in this vision series, Tyler has done the most brilliant job of setting out, first of all, two sessions on the house of the Lord. And then there's been two sessions on prayer, being a house of prayer, one on uh, praying uh, without ceasing. And then last time, as he's begun to set out these simple, accessible, doable practices that can enable us to take Sunday and outwork it on Monday morning. Uh, he, he unpacked this beautiful invitation to pause each day. Sorry, pause each day. <laughs> if you need translation at any point, just put your hand up and I'll give it. But to, to pause every day and pray at, at, at midday for the lost, for those who don't yet know Jesus. And he talked last week about uh, D.L. Moody's persistence in prayer for the lost. Um, And so I'm now going to speak this morning about another of the practices that um, we're encouraging you to adopt as you seek to uh, be shaped as a follower of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus. And that is to... uh, Pray the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father that we, we, we are studying today at the start of each day, whenever that is for you. And um, let me um, just say a couple of things. If you're really interested in this house of prayer um, motif and you're trying to get your head around it, I wrote a whole book called Dirty Glory that's exploring some of these themes in greater depth. Um, and um, this you all know, I'm sure you've already got your copies, but Tyler's book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, that just came out, is just a masterclass, a brilliant, practical, inspirational teaching on prayer, so do get hold of those. When Sammy and I first got married, um, we were able to participate in leading this guy to Jesus, who... um, was very bro- his life was very broken. Uh, he, was, he was addicted to a lot of drugs. And uh, then we began to try and sort of help him to get free um, of the drugs, but also of um, some, some of the strongholds in his life. And he, he moved in with us. Sometimes you just can't meet with someone once or twice a week and give them a program. You just have to share your life with people. And so he moved in with us. And we were on this journey, and then after a few months, the news came through that his father had died. And uh, so Paul went back to visit uh, his stepmother and obviously to attend the funeral. And um, he, 
his, his father had been a mechanic, uh, you know, not a wealthy man, but he went back to the home that his father had been sharing with his stepmother, and she said, Paul, would you like something to remember your dad by? And so he obviously said, yeah, I'd love that. She said, why don't you just go upstairs and you can choose anything that you want, just, you know, to remember. So he went up, he thought for a while. He, I, I think this is beautiful. He decided he would choose a sweater. And every time he wore this sweater, he felt close to his father. And whenever I saw him wearing it, I'd be like, I, I knew he was kind of having a moment. It was like, oh, Paul, it's nice to see you wearing the sweater, you know. And I didn't want to, I want to break it to him that it didn't suit him in any way at all. It was too small for him. It kind of was effeminate. It just wasn't a good look. But you don't, I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm like unbelievably sensitive to people's needs. So, uh, and then his stepmother decided she wanted to come down and visit. And Paul said, hey, I've had a, a great idea, man. Shall I put on the sweater? And we're like, oh, that'd be really nice. So he goes upstairs to get the sweater on. And she's sitting down in the living room drinking tea because it's literally all we know how to do when we're in socially awkward environments in England. And then Paul comes in wearing the sweater. She takes one look at him. This is absolutely true. She takes one look at him and goes, Paul, what are you doing wearing my sweater? I've been looking for that for weeks. <laughs> the idiot had gone to the wrong closet. And all this time, he's like having this moment, feeling really intimate and close to his dad, and he's just wearing a woman's sweater. We live a lot of our lives like that. We use all kinds of things to give us a false sense of closeness and intimacy with our Father in heaven. We can live a vicarious faith, you know, other people's stories. We outsource our prayer life. We buy Christian products. We engage with, you know, the whole kind of machination of Christendom. And something within us feels lonely. And I think the Spirit of the Lord steps into that and says, when do we just cut out the middleman and just talk? Just be in the same room together. And the practices that we are encouraging you to step into are ways of cutting out all of the confusion and the noise and coming back to the essence, the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The Spirit of God is seeking to remove distractions from some of our lives bringing us to this place of true intimacy that's not about religious sentimentality, not about vicarious faith, but is about first principles. And I'm not just saying this using a sort of a vaguely funny story about Paul. This is deeply embedded in church history because the earliest written instructions that we have outside the Bible for how the church was to conduct itself called the Didache, instructs the early church to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. And this is almost certainly because the temple prayer meetings were 9 a.m., uh, I think they were 3 p.m. and dusk. 
And, and we know that uh, the, 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 in, in the Old Testament and to this day, the people of Israel pray the Shema, the Hear, O Israel, three times a day. So it's pretty logical that this outpouring of the Spirit upon G- Jews who've come to believe that Jesus Christ is, is the Son of God, is the Messiah, that, that they would take the Shema prayer time. It's, they've been doing it since they were kids and pray the prayer that Jesus has given them to do. So this invitation to pause at the start of each day and pray the Lord's Prayer, I want you to understand, this is not like a gimmick. You know, we've got this cool pastor in skinny jeans who's got this new idea and he's gonna roll it out. And It's not, this is stepping into primal Christianity, okay? This is, this is removing the weird, you know, fake sweaters and just doing something that has always been uh, at the core of Christian discipleship. And uh, as you probably know, in the original Aramaic language, the Lord's Prayer is 31 words long. It's super short. And I find this startling. It rhymes. Jesus wrote a poem. I I didn't know this. I haven't read this in any book, but I have a friend who um, is a bishop, Bishop Graham Tomlin, and he was listening to a very, very old tradition, having their service uh, in the Holy Land, and they still speak ancient Aramaic. And as they prayed the Lord's Prayer, he's like, oh my goodness, it rhymes. Jesus wrote something that would be easily memorable. And Justin Welby, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury, says this about it. The Lord's Prayer is simple enough to be memorized by small children and yet profound enough to sustain a whole lifetime of exploration in prayer. And so the disciples come to Jesus. He's been in a certain place, places important in developing our prayer lives. And they, they've realized that we're going to step into his rabbinic ministry. The key to everything is to learn how to pray. They never ask him, teach us to preach, <laughs> you know, teach us to evangelism. It's like the prayer, that's the thing. He comes back from his prayer times moving in more power. He comes from his prayer times. That's where he's getting his wisdom from. And if we're ever going to go out and have our own rabbinic schools in his tradition, we're going to have to learn how to be really sharp. And he seems to get it from his prayer times. And we're going to have to do these miracles. And we're not very good at those. And it seems to be that he gets more power when he's been off praying. So they want prayer. But they say something very interesting. They don't just say, Lord, give us some tips on prayer. They say, Lord, teach us to pray as John has taught his disciples. And this is because we're pretty sure that the rabbinic schools of that time had a prayer that was like a statement of faith. It was a creedal positioning prayer. It wasn't just a prayer. It was an encapsulation of their core theology and their distinctive insights. So they're kind of saying to Jesus, Jesus, not trying to teach you how to be the Messiah and all that stuff, you know, but really we're supposed to have a prayer by now. Like anything, and, he, and Jesus gives them this beautiful rhyming prayer and says, this is what I'm all about. Now, this is important because when we decide we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer regularly, some people, and you might have heard this, say, oh, it's vain repetition. But I want to be really clear about this. Firstly, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you are... Uh, um, doing something very ancient. Secondly, 
This is the Jesus Creed. Before we talk about the Nicene Creed, which is, you know, fourth century, convened by an emperor who'd probably faked his own conversion, but that's another story for another time. If you really want to get to the essence of the charogma of, of the good news of Jesus, of the theology of Jesus, it's in the Lord's Prayer. Who here just thinks, it's only 31 words? Hallelujah. <laughs> Children can understand it. <sighs> Hallelujah. Most of our problem with God is he's more relational than we expect him to be. To be less authoritarian than we expect him to be and way simpler than we think he should be. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are speaking the creed of Jesus. And then notice also that the Lord's Prayer is plural. It's we, us, our. It's not me, myself, and I. If it had been written in the Western world, you know, and someone else had done it, then it would be all about the individual and their relationship with God. But Jesus is talking about the family of God. And so when we pray this prayer, we are standing in solidarity. I, I find this so beautiful with one another. So, you know, you're about your day in the middle of the week, but you're, you're doing this in solidarity with other members of Bridgetown. But you're also doing it in communion with the worldwide body of Christ, you know, I, I don't know if this is news to anyone, but there's two billion of us. And we're not perfect, but we are the world's biggest, worldwide, cross-cultural, most diverse conspiracy. We get together to fight injustice, to love people, to bring out the colours in the world, to build family, to be true to our promises. It's kind of a cool thing. And we're part of it, and we get to stand in solidarity, praying this prayer that... And it's not just wide, it's deep. It goes back 2,000 years. If Augustine, St. Augustine turned up in, 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 as you're having your breakfast and you're trying, oh, I'm gonna try and do that Lord's Prayer thing. There's a whole bunch of things you say and do. He'd be like, what's that about? You'd be like, oh, this is, this is essential. If you're gonna be a, you know, a modern charismatic Christian, he's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. But you start praying the Lord's Prayer. He goes, bingo, I understand. I recognize heart of my heart, bone of bone, my bone. So this is a beautiful thing. Now, I, um, this afternoon, Brian and I have had, Brian Heasy and I have had the most beautiful time here uh, we've loved, 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 loved being here in Portland with you, loved being at the 24-7 uh, conference, L privileged to, to be with you now, looking forward to being with um, some of the children just after this. But then we're getting on an aeroplane back to England, and then I am going and getting on a ferry because I'm going on holiday with my family to France tomorrow. Yeah. And, and, and it's a night ferry, and I've, I've taken this ferry before. It's really good. What happens is you get on the ferry, you go and find your cabin, and then you go up to the restaurant, and there is the best buffet you have ever seen in your life. It's not like, you know, just a little. It's like unbelievable amounts of food of every variety, you can imagine, deep fried dodo, you know, obscure cheeses from Guatemala, it's all there. Fruit, it's unbelievable. 
I'm so excited about this buffet. I've actually just realized, did I get more passionate about the food than I did about Jesus? Okay. (laughs) Note to self, if I do this message again, uh, try and be more excited about Jesus than cheese. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. And and frankly, the only thing sadder than someone saying, I don't think I'm going to bother with the buffet. I'm just going to take a sandwich. Would be someone saying, I'm going to go to the buffet, but I'm, I'm only going to eat that one thing. I'd be like, this is a missed opportunity. This is also an Enneagram thing, by the way. I want to try a bit of everything. And the Lord's Prayer, and this is kind of where, what we're going to unpack now in this message, is a buffet. It is a taster menu of not just what we believe, but how to connect with God in prayer. And what this means is that there will be some mornings when you just pray it. By the way, when you pray something, some people think when you say something, if you don't feel it, it's fake. That's not true right? Sometimes you'll feel it, sometimes you won't. That'll be more to do with the weather and your hormones and caffeine than it is to do with the Holy Spirit. If it's true, it's true, it's true. And so um, we don't just pray it though because it's true. We, we also uh, will sometimes pause and explore different lines of it. So some days it'll, you know, get through it in 30 seconds, but other days you may stop and say, actually, this is taking me somewhere and I want to go deeper on this kind of press. I want to tool you up. I want to equip you uh, for that together. And so just uh, look, take a look at this. You, you see in, 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 in the Lord's Prayer, first of all, Jesus gives us, says start with adoration. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he, and then he moves to intercession. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Then it's petition. Give us this day our daily bread. The difference between petition and intercession. Petition is just asking for yourself. Intercession is asking for other people. And then uh, it moves from there into confession. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And then spiritual warfare. Contending in prayer. Deliver us from evil or the evil one. So let's just look at those together. First of all, Hallowed be your name. Jesus says, begin your prayer time with adoration, with worship. This is so important because otherwise we come to prayer. It's like you're on Amazon. You filled your shopping cart with all your needs and you just ram the shopping cart into the shins of the Father. That's prayer. Like, I need this. And I want it delivered now, you know. (laughs) And Jesus says, stop, just admire and recenter upon the goodness of God. We're living at such a distracted time. And this is a moment of recentering on the presence of God. And we live at a time where There's such anxiety, and this is a moment where day by day we say, no, at the heart of all reality is goodness, is love, is a Father in heaven. And it's a moment as well, because we can all live with such hubris, that says, I am not the center of the universe. 
He is. I orbit him and not the other way around. Take a look at this picture. Uh, this is um, a great Renaissance masterpiece of, uh, painted by a painter called Lippi, L-I-P-P-I, Italian. And um, this is the Virgin Mary holding the baby Jesus with Saints Dominic and Jerome kneeling at her feet. And it hangs in the National Gallery in London. And um, the art critics sort of agree that although it's a masterpiece, I mean, just look at the gold frame, it's not his absolute best piece of work because the perspective's a bit weird. It looks a bit like that hill is going to tumble over Mary's shoulder into, in, onto the marble floor of the National Gallery. But, I mean, look. It's an Italian Renaissance masterpiece. You can't just put it in your, in your restroom. You know, you've got to put it in a gallery. But anyway, one day this um, quite well-known art critic called Robert Cumming was standing in the National Gallery looking at Lippi's piece. And as he looked at the painting, he suddenly had an epiphany. The most obvious thing, actually. You can see it from the frame. This was not painted to hang in an art gallery. It was painted as an altarpiece, to sit on an altar that people would kneel in front of. And so, rather self-consciously, the proud art critic who had been standing back and analyzing and assessing and critiquing the painting, knelt down in a crowded art gallery in front of a less than perfect masterpiece with tourists thinking, what is he doing? And he said, as he knelt down between St. Dominic and St. Jerome and looked up at the Lord Jesus Christ on the lap of Mary, he said, everything suddenly morphed into perfect perspective. All those years, the proud art critics Judging it as all out of perspective, we're missing the blindingly obvious. Change your posture. Change the position from which you assess reality and things will come into perspective. Life will not have proper perspective until you learn to kneel regularly. And you'll come out of your prayer time and many times nothing will have changed outwardly. Your bank account is still not exactly a cause of great joy. And your kids are still being a pain in various parts of your anatomy. But your relationship with those things has changed because you've remembered at the heart of all reality is a good, loving, holy Father. Sometimes as you pray the Lord's Prayer each morning, it'll just be that. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But other times you'll pause and you'll worship and you'll give thanks. You'll count your blessings. You might read a psalm or you might put on a worship track. But then Jesus continues. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. This is intercession. This is standing in the gap. It is pulling God's rule and reign, God's word and his purpose into reality in Portland as in heaven, in your street, in your school, in your workplace as in heaven. 
And Tyler did a brilliant job of unpacking that, looking at Elijah and his um, contest with the prophets of Baal uh, on Mount Carmel last week. We must be absolutely clear that prayer is partnership with God. Some people say to me, well, I don't really know why I need to pray. If God's all-loving, all-knowing, and all-powerful, won't he just do whatever is needed at any given time? What difference can my prayers make? But actually, I believe Scripture is completely clear that there are things that will not happen unless you pray for them. There are things that will only happen in your family, your workplace, your street, when you and I learn to grab hold of the purpose of God. Because Jesus says, we need to pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, because it's not automatic. Otherwise, it's just a waste of time. The Nobel Peace Prize winner Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, says, for whatever reason, since humankind showed up on the scene, God does nothing without a human partner. There's lots of bits of the Bible that I could use to demonstrate this, but let's just look at Isaiah chapter 37 and 38. So in Isaiah 37, verse 21, God says a really interesting thing to King Hezekiah. He says, because you prayed, here is what I'm going to do. Do you hear that? Because you prayed. And then he's going to overcome Sennacherib, the enemy. But God is... Uh, angry with uh, Hezekiah. And so we read in Isaiah 38, verse 1, he, he, says, he says to Hezekiah, you're going to die imminently. And then it's so interesting, that's verse 1. And verse 2 says, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed and cried with a bitter cry. I mean, this isn't nice praying. This is wailing before God. Have mercy. It's intercession. And then we read in verse 5, the most extraordinary thing. It says, God says, I have heard your prayer and I have seen your tears. And God gives him another 15 years. It looks suspiciously as if Hezekiah's prayers have somehow influenced the will of God. That is such a big theological question that I'm so excited that Tyler Staten is going to address it systematically in a future teaching series. If you're the only Christian in your workplace, the only Christian in your street, you're the only Christian in your family, it's tough. But I can tell you this, you are there as a priest You are the only person who's going to stand in that place and pray, God, bring your kingdom here. What are you wanting to say? What are you wanting to do? Now come, let your kingdom reign. Are you still with me? Turn to the person next to you and say, your breath smells great after coffee. Go. Okay. I told you, we're just, we're just at that buffet, like grabbing stuff at the moment. So we've, we've had a bit of adoration and we've, we've done a bit of intercession and now petition. Now we're going to grab the bread rolls. Who here loves a, loves a warm bread roll? Oh yeah, with the butter just, anyway. 
Jesus says, pray, give us this day our daily bread. I cannot think of a better example to illustrate this beautiful, personal, bringing before the Father our needs and our wants than the life of the great saint, George Muller, the 19th century philanthropist and pastor who lived in Bristol, England. Extraordinary, extraordinary man. If you have heard of him before, you will know that he started 117 schools. He cared for 10,024 orphans. And he educated 120,000 children. That is remarkable. In fact, he was accused by the outraged Victorians at the time of raising the poor above their station. Who longs for pastors to be accused of that again? Yeah? Bridgetown Church, they're raising the poor above their station. What's even more remarkable is that he never asked for money. He personally believed, and it's different for different people, Muller believed that he shouldn't ask for money, he should just bring all his needs before the Lord in prayer. And so he did that. And it's estimated that he raised around 150 million US dollars in today's money just through the power of prayer. And uh, so there's one particular occasion that's particularly relevant to this give us this day our daily bread because he was... He had a a great hall full of orphans who were sitting down for their breakfast. And what George Muller knew was there was literally no food. There was zero food. And so they're sitting there, all these hungry kids. I mean, if you've got one or two or three hungry kids, you know what that's like. He's got, I don't know, a hundred. And so he he thought, well, I guess we stand up and say grace. So he prayed for what we're about to receive. (laughs) May the Lord make us truly thankful. As he's praying, there's a knocking at the door. He opens the door and the local baker is there with trays of steaming, uh, freshly baked bread. And he said this, God woke me at two o'clock this morning and said, I need to bake bread for the orphans. Here you go. I mean, maybe it's a fluke, but maybe if you think that's a fluke, you've got more faith in the power of fluke than you have in a God who loves us and gives us our daily bread, especially if you're an orphan. And then as the kids are tucking into that warm bread, there's another knock at the door, and it's the local milkman. This is back in the days when, you know, it was a milk cart, and he had his big urns of milk out to deliver them, and the axle on his cart broke outside the orphanage, which meant he couldn't get the milk to where it was supposed to go, and it would go off. And he said, have you got any use for all these urns of milk? So that day they got their daily bread and fresh milk alongside it. He promises to give you your daily bread, so tell him your needs. Sometimes he'll give you Nutella on your bread, Enjoy it, but don't lose your faith if sometimes it's only bread. Tell him your needs. Tell him your wants. He loves to bless you, but the needs is the bit that's promised. So let's bring our petitions before the Lord with a grateful heart. And then some people say to me, well, look, why on earth do we need to ask God for anything? It's a good question. 
Let me suggest three things very quickly. Firstly, God's always seeking relationship. If he just automatically did everything for us, like he's just playing chess, there's no relationship. There's something about asking that's relational. Remember the woman with the issue of blood who touches the hem of his garment in the crowd, and it says, fascinating thing, the power went out of him. She was healed. He felt it. And he immediately needed to know who touched me because the miracle was kind of the easy bit. He wanted to give her a name and a face. That's his heart towards you. He's not interested in just mindlessly, robotically providing for you. He wants to know you. And we're invited to ask as well because it's vulnerable. When we ask, we admit need. Some of us find that hard. And we extend trust. And he wants us to ask as well because it is intentional. It's so easy to be passive. Well, God, I guess God will just do whatever. Remember Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus gets to Jesus. And Jesus says, Aye, uh, what do you want me to do for you then? And Bartimaeus goes, Duh, the clue is in the name. I'm blind. I'd like to be healed. And Jesus goes, Oh, okay, and heals him. He wants us to articulate our need. And then we carry on. Next bit of the buffet, forgive us our sins. As we forgive those who sin against us. I don't know about you, but at least once a day, I need to get before the Father and go, I'm sorry, I've screwed up my thinking, my motives. Something I've said, something I've done, I'm so sorry. I admit it. And I find the longer I go on in faith, the less holy I feel. I hope it's because as we get close to the light, the more aware we become of the dirt. But it may just be that I'm a complete mess. But it's a good discipline to regularly bring yourself back to a place of confession before the Lord. And finally... Deliver us from the evil one. Jesus, by the way, I mean, don't you find it extraordinary that he ends his ultimate prayer with the word evil? It's like, that's why we've tacked on for, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, which is a quote from King David. Because we're like, you, Jesus, just a tip from us, you really cannot end on that note. But Jesus was extraordinarily conscious of the spiritual battle that rages around us all the time. It's so important that if we are to be his followers, we truly embrace a biblical cosmology that acknowledges that there is evil at loose in our world. Raise your hand if you ever saw the film Silence of the Lambs. Wow, lots of very disturbed people. <laughs> I'm not like advocate, I'm just, yeah, it's just a question. <laughs> Gee, you guys. There's this bit in the, in the horror movie, uh, by the way, watching horror movies is a bad thing to do. Uh, but anyway, there, there's a bit in the horror movie, which I am now gonna quote, Silence of the Lambs in which uh, Clarice Starling, um, who's a young FBI trainee, asks the cannibalistic serial murder Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins, 
what on earth happened to make him so twisted? And he says this, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You have given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You have got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anyone's fault anymore. Look at me. Can you stand to say I'm evil? Writing about this Andrew Del Banco in his book, The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost Their Sense of Evil, says modern people cannot answer Hannibal Lecter's question. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources for coping with it, he says. We have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in it. In fact, we don't like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But, he was writing a while ago, as the 20th century has gone on, it has got harder and harder to say that holocausts, and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. Ephesians chapter 6 says, Your battle, my battle, is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. So one of the reasons we need to pray is because it is a spiritual battle. And so I'm going to finish one story. We, we recently lost our much-loved family pet, a large labradoodle called Noodle. Uh, she was the kindest thing you have ever met. I don't think she ever knowingly was unkind to another living thing. She kind of looked like a wolf, but she was unbelievably sweet. She had big shaggy hair. We loved her dearly. She was the dog the kids grew up with. And when they were little, the kids also had a hamster, uh, called Snuffles. And ha- Snuffles was like the Houdini of hamsters. It, I have no idea. It, its ability to get out of its cage was incredible. And one of the many occasions, actually, I think the kids might have had something to do with it, but that's another story. On one occasion, Snuffles had escaped again and made its way down the stairs to where Noodle was lying. And I was kind of in the kitchen looking down the hallway and there is this 65-pound wolf. And then there's this tiny, <laughs> this tiny little ball of fluff called Snuffles who just knew no fear. And the two are eyeballing one another. And it's like too late. I'm just like, I'm transfixed. I'm like, oh, I'm like, it's like I'm watching a natural history program. So Noodle is looking at Snuffles. It's less than one mouthful. It's not even an aperitif. And Snuffles, fearless yet stupid, is staring at the vast mountain of wolf. And then the strangest thing happened. I'm not exaggerating. I watched Noodle. I mean, there's no dignity in this. She rolled over on her back and submitted in front of Snuffles. Don't hurt me. (laughs) Can I suggest that some of us spend a lot of our lives, although we are in Christ Jesus and he that's in us is greater than he that's in the world, 
and we've been raised up and we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, rolling over and not understanding the authority we have to shape reality. By standing on the word of God, Ephesians 6, stand, stand, stand. And by pulling in the rule and reign of Christ to depose the evil dictatorship that is wreaking havoc all around us. I wonder if part of this praying of the Lord's Prayer and adopting these practices isn't just us trying to be a bit holier, a bit more like Jesus, but is about us living life in an opposite spirit. Can I say to you that one of the things I see in Portland coming in from the outside is something that feels very familiar to me as a European. There's a slightly post-Christian jaded sadness and suspicion and cynicism amidst wonderful creativity and beauty. And I wonder if as the people of God, we are called to come against that in the opposite spirit and to be people who live with childish wonder and with joy and with hope in a hopeless culture, that we bring colour, we build things instead of destroying things, we kneel before the painting instead of standing proud and critiquing it. We are people who have seen another realm and it is good and it is beautiful and we are determined to spend our lives pulling it in that sinners would be forgiven and the sick would be healed and families would be restored and the great buffet of God's feast would be laid out in front of us for all who wish to participate. Amen? I managed to get more excited about that than the buffet. So I hope those are some useful tools for you as you pray the Lord's Prayer. No Criticism at all, if many days you just pray it, and that's it, 30 seconds. But there will be days, maybe on a day off, when you linger and you worship. Maybe you don't even do the rest of it. Or you move into intercession, and it is actually a deep contending, and there are tears like King Hezekiah. Days when you're crying out to God for provision because things are hard. Days when... Confessing your sins takes over because there's a deep work of holiness in your life going on. And days when you're called to engage in spiritual warfare because you carry authority in your family and your street and your workplace. Walk tall. Everyone just got lucky. A follower of Jesus Christ walked into the room. So I wonder if we could just stand together. And I just can't think of any other way to end this than to pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us. And I don't know how many times we've all done this. But perhaps today we might have a fresh thrill at the thought that we are praying this in solidarity with the church going back 2,000 years. And I should say that the community uh, guide this week is going to take this message deeper. There's going to be space this week in your communities to begin to unpack these different practices and tools in prayer and start to put them into practice with daily rhythms. And so I'd really encourage you to uh, make the most of that. But uh, I know we all have different versions of the Lord's Prayer, but uh, that's why I'm putting the words on the screen and, and, and we'll just pray it this way together now. So let's pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us.
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Amen.